Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This podcast was produced to coincide with the Rebellious Minds seminar series. The series was produced by the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies as part of Victoria University of Wellington's 125th anniversary celebrations. Rebellious Minds explores episodes of dissent, nonconformity, critical thinking, and eccentricity from across the university's history, aspiring to highlight stories of rebellion in political, social, and cultural life. My name is Stephen Loveridge, and this session was produced to pair with a lecture given on Sir Lloyd Gehring's Thoughts and Deeds, which will be made available on the Stout Centre website for your viewing pleasure. It is with Gehring's ideas of religious change in mind that I'm speaking today with Tehenere, a leading voice in the Māori Atheist and Freethinkers group Atua Kori, and the scholar Arama Tairia, who is undertaking postgraduate research on the religious outlook of Cook Islands Māori in New Zealand. Our conversation considers their private opinions and insights on changing patterns in religious and spiritual beliefs, and asks what wider implications these changes may hold for communities and cultural identities. Tēnā koutou, and thank you for joining me today. Kia ora tēnā <laughs> The reason I've asked you to speak with me today is that you both have insights which touch upon changing attitudes towards religion, religiosity and the supernatural, which appear to be bound up with the cultural identity of Māori and Cook Islands Māori. I'd like to start with your individual stories and proceed to some comparative questions which can highlight that insight. So all very simple, uh, easy matters today, guys. Tenere, let's start with where you are now and your journey to this point. You run a Māori freethinkers group, Atua Kori, Māori atheists and freethinkers. Could you give us an overview of that group and its mission statement? Um, yeah, so um, I started uh, Atua Kore, uh, Māori atheists and freethinkers in 2011. It's an online community and well, there's no kind of mission statement. I set it up basically to find other like-minded atheists, other Māori who had um, not only uh, rejected uh, the Christian faith, uh, belief in um, God, but also uh, had questions around Māori spiritual beliefs, Māori religion, pre-colonial religion, supernatural beliefs, um, all that kind of stuff. We are, I mean, I am, I should say, trying to give it more of a purpose. And so one of my plans is to have a Māori Atheist Conference at some stage. Uh, this was the plan before COVID hit, and so I've had to kind of put that off. But now I'm starting to pick that kaupapa up again. And Arama, you're a relatively recent recipient of the Lloyd Gearing Scholarship at Victoria University of Wellington. Could you give us an overview of what your research involves and any findings you wish to share at this stage? Yeah, definitely. So I guess essentially what I'm looking to examine is um, changing religious identities and how they affect cultural identities, um, if they do at all. The census data, uh, if you look at it through the last three, um, it's kind of just showed a consistent increase in Kokara uh, Māori uh, identified with no religion. 2018, it was like 37%. I wouldn't be surprised right now, because I think next year's like 2023 census. I wouldn't be surprised if that number's now hitting like 40%, if not higher. And... Yeah, I'm kind of just interested in the implications of that shift, if there's any happening. So my work itself, it's a qualitative investigation, which is basically the same as talking to people. And my goal is to speak to about 15 Kokama Māori across religious spectrum. So we're talking from like atheists, non-religious to devout Christians, across age groups, sexual orientations, the like. 
what I'm kind of wanting to look at is how they understand and engage with religion, how they navigate like their belief or non-belief in daily life. And this, I guess, yeah, if this has any effect on like their understanding of cultural identity. So far, I've talked about ten people. The result from that has been pretty, pretty interesting. Their religious engagements themselves, which is across the board. Like one of the things that stands out quite prominently, I found in all their voices, is like they have this like sharp distaste or uncertainty of the word religion. So far as like the day-to-day life of how religion permeates their life, it seems to be more salient for those that kind of belong to born-again or Pentecostal groups than the traditional like ethnic, ethnocentric groups where language was dominant. When you look at the history of it, when you try to analyse the history of it, some people call it a colonising force. And when I've spoken to the non-religious crowd, they've kind of said, you know, it's kind of hard to fully disentangle from. But they kind of see still kind of possibly having a value to our culture going forward for the religious types. Um, they kind of, I guess, speak to it as saying that Kukan culture didn't change, just adapted. But I mean, I guess just be more generally, you know, on that term, culture is that quite strongly contested, and you know this is evident through my the people I've spoken to so far. They kind of you know, speak to it being something that's blood regardless. Tad is saying, uh, yeah, it's like certain ca- cultural characteristics you can't pick up through the church. Yeah, I just worth my research too. I'm like in the early stages of it, so right. so far as like analysing the data, you know, just still, still a lot of that to go. So I guess a lot of what I've just kind of spoke to today could change. And I kind of just want to make sure we're clear to the listeners. The name Cook Islands has a colonial heritage. Kind of just quick to brush over like the vast diversity of those islands. I, when I talk about Cook Islands, use the term Cook Islands today, um, I'm kind of just doing it out of ease for our conversation. But, you know, I want it to be known that there's like 30, well, you know, with the Cooks, there's 15 islands to which they don't inhabit. But there's like 10 to 13 ways you can kind of experience being a Cook Islander. So. That's a fascinating taste of your research. And, uh... <laughs> Watch the space. Yeah. Could I just check one thing? You mentioned that this census is leading towards 40% identifying as having no religion? Yes, uh, 2018, uh, 37.7. But I mean, we're looking to like four years right. from that now. Well, I guess and I think 2023 is when the next census, um, if, if I was to make an estimate, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that figure increases to to at least 40%. And how does that compare historically if we look a few decades prior? Yeah, I mean, I, like, do you mean in terms of the shift between? Like, yeah, has, kind has, of, has this been a rapid fall or a uh, slow trend? It's a, I, I'd, I'd probably lean towards it more being a bit of a, a slow trend. I mean, it probably, I don't know, has its origins starting to ramp up about like, you know, mm. the 80s or something. But okay. Yeah, it's it's not like a rampant, but it is like a thing that's you know, been kind of occurring. Yeah, when you kind of look at the census data, you just see that gradual increase each year. So if, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but if I was modelling that, I'd kind of almost predict that yeah, there'll be... There is a and, trend going towards that direction. Yeah, and I'm just fascinated. Well, I'm just, I have a keen interest in what that, you know, what the implications are. Tenere, does that uh, strike you in any way? The other thing to ask, um, is... Is it the same trend in the Cook Islands itself? Nah, so, uh, sorry, I better clarify. I'm focusing on Cook Island Modern Museum. Yep. Not looking back at the Cooks, that's that's a whole separate uh, ball field. In the Cooks, it's kind of religious affiliation, especially towards Christianity, still remain still remains quite high. Pretty high. Uh, yeah, yeah, but coming here, it's just been a gradual shift away from... Like, so this is a distinct... Phenomena within the diaspora population. Yeah, would, yeah, yeah. That'd be the term you would use. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would be the term I'd use. Um, I haven't looked at the 
like Australian stats, because I know there's large numbers of Kukalans over there. So mm-hmm. this is roughly estimates about 80,000 Kukalans Māori here. Back in the Cook Islands, about 20, maybe just under 20. Over in Australia, about 30,000. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I haven't looked at what's happening in Australia, if, if they even click that data, but I do know it here. Yeah. Well, grounds to expand your research. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to head across the Tasman. Research fund, please. <laughs> well, if that gives us a sense of uh, where we are now, um, the second big question is meant to be, um, where are we from? If I can turn to how you got to this position here and, and looking at what you're looking at, uh, to Henry, uh, <clears throat> would you give us a sense of your background and, and how you became a free thinker? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I started life in rural New Zealand in a rural Māori community. I'd say about 90% Māori for this community. Um, Eastern Bear Plenty, and uh, I was brought up uh, in a relatively traditional uh, setting, right next to our marae, kind of upbringing. Um, it's a little bit of living off the land kind of stuff happening. And then as a 15-year-old, I moved to Wellington. It's a little bit of a difference. Uh, but I came here to go to school, and I think probably around the time because... I had moved from a community where I was a member of the dominant culture and moving to Wellington, I was now a minority and I kind of went through an identity crisis that I've only kind of been aware of looking back as an adult. So part of that, I kind of grabbed onto my culture a little bit tighter. I was I became a little bit more mouldy than, than I ever was. And, and in part of that process, this teenage identity crisis, I... Um, Consciously started rejecting aspects of mainstream Pākehā culture, and part of that was religion. And so I was christened in the Anglican Church as a child, and so this identity crisis kind of forced me into um, grab onto my culture a little bit tighter, but also to reject things like the Bible, to reject Christianity, and then um, also to embrace whatever I knew about Māori religion. And so uh, I remember at the time when I was going through this, I had heard about a Māori god uh, called Eel. So Eel's not widely known, but Eel is in some parts of the country the Māori equivalent to one supreme being, one supreme god. And so <laughs> I kind of had this weird teenage fixation on Eel and I would pray to Eel and not pray to God, the white god of the Bible, uh, the elderly Caucasian looking guy with a beard. Um, I kind of embraced this eel idea, not really knowing what it was. And then this process kind of continued. Um, I went on to university and actually found out at university here at Vic that eel was a post-colonial construct. It was actually invented and there's a date, I think it's around 1856, some tohunga, it is said that some tohunga created this idea of eel to, to match this new introduced idea of monotheism. Now I think the evidence is pretty pretty good for that, that it was introduced. There's not really any evidence for a pre-colonial monotheistic supreme being in Maori beliefs. So I kind of had to adjust again, and so I went from eel, this one supreme being, to embracing Maori gods, not to a Maori. So pre-colonial times, Maori had, well, they were polytheists, mm-hmm. I guess you'd, you'd call them, which meant they believed in a number of different gods, there's a god over here of the ocean. There's a god over here of uh, cultivated foods. There's a god over here of the weather. Um, and so I kind of went back to that religion, I guess, those beliefs. At the same time, I am you know, further developing my critical thinking skills. 
And for a while, I was happy to park this part. I didn't want to really critically analyze my Māori gods because it was so entwined with my identity and who I am. And so I refused to put that on the table. But eventually, um, what is it that pushes you to actually put these things on the table as well? I, I started caring more about truth. You know, what is true, actually? You know, if I just put everything on the table... <clears throat> Otherwise, I'm not being intellectually consistent. I'm not being. I'm not applying critical thinking in all aspects of my life. So I did. I analysed these things and, and and found that you know there wasn't any evidence for these things actually existing. So then I, I kind of held on to them, but as metaphors in a metaphoric sense, not literally. You know, I didn't think they literally existed. And that's that's kind of where I am now. I um you know I don't believe in um, the God of the Bible or Atua Māori or Māori gods or anything supernatural. And that's just for, um, that's come about as a process of just just analysing everything honestly and critically thinking about uh, my own beliefs. In the same way, in the same way I critically analyse anyone else's claims. And so I'm an atheist. I'm not anti or religion uh, per se. There are aspects of religion I loathe. Uh, there are some aspects of religion I think are really cool. Community is an example of that. Uh, coming together for a common cause is a really human thing. But yeah, that's me. I'm an atheist. I, I don't believe in anything supernatural. I care about what's true, and I care about what can be supported with evidence. It's a fascinating journey to walk. I think we'll dip back into the question of, of the relation between religion, religiosity, and culture. But can I ask, how um, significant was religion in your upbringing? You mentioned you were raised in the Anglican tradition, but was it... Uh... It wasn't too significant. It was it was there. So we uh, all grew up with a fear of God. Mm. Uh, we had the fear of hell. And um, if you wanted to tell the truth, um, you would say, I swear to God. <laughs> That kind of thing. So it was there in the background, but we didn't go to church regularly. Okay. Um, that had kind of died out where I came from. People didn't really go to church regularly. But there was definitely Māori supernatural beliefs there. So that was woven throughout all aspects of daily life. One last question. You mentioned that your commitment to truth was what made you start changing your mind on this. What do you put that down to? Yeah, I've thought about this. I can't put it down to anything in particular. I just think once you start down the path, you know, there's no single event, but there's once I started down the path of caring about truth, that kind of that kind of snowboard from there. Right. I, I remember a previous talk I remember you gave, and you mentioned it as a process of mental spring cleaning. Is that still the description you would use? Yeah, yeah, that's how that's how um, describe it. Fascinating. Arama, um, I'd like to ask you about <laughs> your story to how you yeah. decided to take on postgraduate research. What leads a young man uh, <laughs> yeah. to apply for the Lloyd Gearing Scholarship and to take on postgraduate research? What, what, what led me there? I don't know. <laughs> I just threw an application in and all of a sudden, no. <laughs> I mean, partly it's a personal journey of understanding, but it's also kind of been driven by my want to make sure I make a kind of effective cultural comment from the change. So, I mean, I think to clear up what's my religious position in all this, uh, I consider myself like agnostic and religious. But, I mean, to give context to who I am as a person, um, I'm probably a little born and bred. I just kind of describe my upbringing as being between, between two worlds. I kind of, I grew up like in a, what, I guess like a secular environment. Um, that's like, both like skillfully 
schooling primary and secondary, or some might call it like suburbia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, within like cultural community requirements, they might call it a bit of um, what's called a pop art environment, or it's like the cocoa with like European um, kind of way. Um, at the same time, when I was growing up, um, so my family is like huge. But there's lots of us. <laughs> um, and there was always like that kind of engagement with them whilst you're growing up. And kind of, you know, what stood out to me is that I saw the church, you know, and Christianity being quite important to them. Uh, and what I mean there is kind of um, in the vein of, uh, like, I think like I touched on before, like those ethnocentric churches where it's in like, the Gokhanan language. But as I grew up, I kind of started seeing, uh, you know, my cousins start to leave that, that space uh, for church is kind of more aligned to their spiritual needs. Yeah, and I guess just more generally as I grew up, like in the back, back of my mind, you know, it was just kind of, I, I was just had an interest there of like, like, why is it, you know, my people are attracted to Christianity more generally are religious, you know, when I wasn't. Do you have an answer? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out, I think. Uh, and, can, you know, when I talk about, like, so I've highlighted like, the religious change that kind of the, the census data shows. But, I mean, in terms of cultural change, the sort of Cook Island language has kind of been stated for a while, it's been in a state of decline. And you, when you look at, like, the metrics of that, you see the very strongly over 60s, those in the, like, the 30 to 50s, at brackets, like, half of that. And then, yeah, as you go down the age brackets, this gets less and less. And so, like, I'm not trying to say there's a correlation between the two, you know, that increasing non-religion leads to language decline. But um, I kind of think that the the two are in some way affecting each other, you know, and, like, this is, I guess this is just one example of, like, requirement this that's experienced change. And I'm not saying, like, we have to go back to the church to bring it to life, um, but I guess just, like, what I'm trying to do right now is just kind of provide a detailed snapshot of, like, what's happening, like, religiously and culturally how it happened, or what might we reflect on going into the future. I also feel like I'm trying to loud in the voices of those that uh, might be missed, you know, such as the non-religious crowds, and um, just like more generally the peculiarities of like everyone's experience that might be like lost at the same time. And yeah, I, like I said, I'm just trying to give an effective composition and hopefully have it be something that's like useful and practical, others can pick up on. You know, I'm not trying to save my culture, uh, but maybe just like kind of give the younger generations a useful resource that they can kind of use as my culture continues to evolve. And since this is all going to turn into a thesis, there's some, some original academic down again. I've got to like, why not? Throw it amongst all of that. So, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask, would it be fair to foreshadow at this point that the church has been a, an area of cultural preservation? Yeah. Conservation? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, there's definitely, it's, um, you know, it's, I look at maybe MPP or Ministry for Pacific Peoples. It's mm-hmm. kind of, I guess, a lot of what the uh, projects they put forward to kind of sustain Polynesian Pacific cultures. They, it often kind of has an element that engages with the church. So there's, yeah, there is this kind of like general assumption that, yeah, the, the church does still serve a place, mm-hmm. therefore the culture. Uh, and some of these points may become more um, teased out with some of the questions we are asking <laughs> soon, but I'm trying to do a bit of foreshadowing. Hopefully this gives listeners a sense of uh, the individuals and um, how you've got to the places you've got to. So considering the potential weight and scale the subjects we're touching on, I thought I would revolve this interview around three big questions, which I hope will give you some grounds to explore and for listeners to hear your perspectives and insights. Ready for the first one? 
In his 2009 book, Coming Back to Earth, the New Zealand theologian Lloyd Gehring, a name I'm sure you know, uh, notes that cultures developed differently around the globe, creating, and I quote, different ways of being human, e.g. a Maori way, a Chinese way, a Christian way, a Muslim way, etc., close quote. Gehring then notes his sense of a trend towards universalism that will reconcile differences within traditional religions. Quote again, all these different ways of being human are losing their absolute distinctiveness and a common way of being human is slowly emerging, close quote. To what extent does Gehring's outlook square with your own? Tehenare, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I think the uh, short answer for me is yes, uh, that's, I agree. I think um, if you look at Maori culture, for example, um, it's quite drastically different today uh, to what it was at first contact with Europeans. And I'm not even sure if Maori ourselves realise how different it is. I think uh, contemporary Maori culture is, is probably closer to Western culture than it is to Maori culture from 200 years ago. And so yeah, there's a huge difference and I think that happened relatively quickly. And so I think there is a trend towards, as cultures come together, we're a more multicultural, global community. Homogenizing? Yeah, yeah, I think that's what's going on. And I think it's quite a natural process. Mm-hmm. I think cultures see different ways of doing things and they start taking from other from each other and start putting aside things that don't really, um, they don't really fit in a contemporary mm-hmm. multicultural society anymore. And you think this will be increasingly secular? Yeah, I think I think the stats bear that out as well. I think there's a trend to, as Adama talked about earlier, there's a trend towards people being less religious, and less religious <coughs> affiliation. More people are ticking the no, no religion box in the census. I think we're two and a half million people tick the no religion box these days. And and with that, we're becoming more and more secular as a country. Okay, Adama, I'll turn to you. Same question. <laughs> Um, I mean, it does and it doesn't, but I think, like, to understand my answers here, we've got to kind of, like, reflect on getting himself and, um, what he may or could, like, probably mean by this. Uh, I think I remember talking to you in the earlier conversation, Stephen, that Gehring is very much modernist. You know what? I could be drove much of his thought. Uh, it's the vast experiences he's had, like, through life. I mean, he's 104 now. It's February, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, um... He's essentially lived like through two wood walls, and he's like, he's, he's outlived three of his wives. And then on top of that, he's um, yeah, he's just, he's just experienced vast like, social change along the way. Um, and I th- the statement itself, I think, kind of very much aligns with his like broader and like I'd say like a general ideology. He carried out through much of his work, which I'll turn through um, a theme: uh, stay stay up to date and keep relevant. There's a lot that kind of contributes to it, um, which I won't speak on. What I believe he's insinuating is aspects of traditions associated with these particular ways of cultures uh, are losing their relevance. I don't believe he's saying multicultural Chinese culture is disappearing, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, I believe what he's saying is that kind of um, shedding his stuff no longer relevant. Uh, we've got to remember too, he's a fan of secular. Um, he's a fan of secular. I mean, he's got a book, I think, called like, In Praise of the Secular. Now, um, He's a fan of it too in the more historical sense of like lessening importance of religion um, in everyday life. So like the lessening of importance of religion, what he's saying here on the lessening distinctness, distinctive ways of being like Maori or Chinese, I think there's certain aspects of their ways of being able becoming less important. But the thing is is, you know, he, he comes up short of never actually deeping never actually like deeply digging into what happens within the secular and a personal level. Um or what in fact 
the secular culture, if it could be a thing. So like, to me, I read this, his remark on the Conway being emerging uh, to be attributed towards his tendency towards secularism without actually uh, asking too much more on what secularism is or how it functions. So, I mean, if I was to say it does, how it does square with my own research, Commons has been migrating here for a while now. Kind of the 1940s is kind of when it takes off, but, um, you know, to be fair, like, goes back even further even, I think, until, like, the late 19th century, possibly earlier. And so we're kind of like, we're many generations deep and entrenched in this country. Um, for my parents' generation, where for some they kind of grew up as children of new migrants, they experienced a time in this country where to succeed essentially meant like a culturalising uh, to the culture of the dominant group. That meant foregoing like the close association with religion that their parents experienced. You know, if the secular implies a better life in the country you migrated to, then yeah, uh, the way of being uh, their parents grew up in, I wanted to transfer to them. Face erosion, if not eroded completely, all has collapsed into, uh, into like a, a common way of being. Like, this is not a story spoken to directly, but alluded to quite frequently by my participants. And again, coming back, um, the common thread was around language. And what I should point here is the use of language, of, of use of language that doesn't emerge uh, from resistance to learn it, or that their parents told them that there's no point learning it. Uh, what it is, it's like an inadvertent succumbing by the social cultural forces of the dominant group and um, whatever their culture might be, secular or Western. If what has happened, climate modelling with relation to language, and yes, I could say Gehring is right, making that remark, but I also, but also uh, that his, this convergence, he seems to imply, like, forgets or looks over the luggage that was carrying with it, kind of like I've just described. But I also don't agree with Gehring. I feel like my participants echo this too. My participants voice in their own distinct ways, I mean, different ways in which they perceive themselves to be cook and Māori. Um, I guess this creates a bit of a roadblock to the cultural assumption that feeds Gehring's perspective on secularism. Uh, the expression of their own distinct ways vary. For some, they consider Christianity to be part of how they express their Kukaimanas, whilst for others, religion is completely open. I think, and I believe, and I believe my participants concur with me, that even if these characteristically distinct ways or aspects of the past are no longer relevant, it doesn't mean that they consider themselves to be converging on a common way of being. And this, this is the case for all, is that how they go about that expression of being a Cook Islander uh, reinforces to them via their distinct way. Uh, is a Cook Island way still flourishing? And I mean, I guess to counter the argument, one could can make here is that because of the vast distinct ways of being a Cook Islander is emergent, there's not like kind of like, not essentially firm what again more broadly means on like that loss of absolute distinctiveness. One can maybe say yes, but again, I think I believe, and I think you know, the voice of my participants and my people would resist like such a suggestion. Okay. Well, let me um, fire the second major question there because this is possibly going to open up some of these differences between your answers there. Yeah. Okay. Shortly before his retirement a few years back, Professor Peter Lynham, a leading thinker in the study of New Zealand's religious history raised an eyebrow at convictions that New Zealand would obviously become an ever more secular country. Among other things, he noted that multiculturalism and the growing number of people identifying as, quote, spiritual but not religious, signals some very different trends. If Gehring is seeing or predicting less absolute distinctiveness, Lynham seems to be anticipating more or new distinctions. Is this evident in your own experiences? So again, a short answer, I think, I think yes, New Zealand is becoming a more secular country. I think the stats uh, show that. And as it happens, we, go, we become more secular, we're less dogmatic, we embrace things like gay marriage, same-sex marriage, um, conversion therapy, things like that are banned. And these are kind of all resistance 
a resistance to religiosity and dogma. But there do appear to be new kinds of religions, I guess quasi-religions and um, spiritual beliefs emerging and perhaps replacing religion. I don't know if there's, I'm not convinced that there's more of that and that religious belief has been directly replaced by that. But I do think, yeah, there are some interesting beliefs uh, emerging. So if I use the example of Te Māori, there's a pretty strong decolonization narrative at the moment, mm. re-indigenizing things. Um, and part of that is really exciting, some really exciting stuff there. Part of that I find, found also a little bit peculiar. I've noticed a trend where people are going back and grabbing pre-colonial Māori beliefs, kind of reinventing them as well. Um, so they're taking the really nice parts of those beliefs and com I think in some cases completely ignoring or even perhaps pretending they don't exist or the uh, not-so-nice parts. So there the, the appears, and again this is just my opinion, there's no kind of research on this that I've seen, but I, I do see the emergence of a quasi-religious Māori spirituality. Perhaps another example is the embracing of the Māori lunar calendar, which again is a really cool thing, something I've uh, been interested in and um, my grandfather was an expert in. And so maramataka is basically how Māori would structure their everyday activities from fishing to planting food, all that kind of thing. So People are going back and grabbing that, which again I think is pretty cool and really interesting stuff, but also it is morphing into a kind of quasi-religion. Sometimes it's used like horoscopes, where certain lunar phases can predict your mood and that kind of thing, which which I think is interesting. I guess another way to ask it may be, uh, will the decline in traditional religion see an upsurge in rationality, free thinking? Maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'd say not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah. Rama, uh, same question. You know, I have general musings around this. You know, the way I see it is that we kind of live more constantly in like a liminal space in our day and age. I'm not sure if this is this is more so than the past, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. And you know, it's culture and religion can be an asset or a hindrance really, in our day and age. What define kind of defines whether it's one or the other is often very much like determined by the the social context one is in. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, as we navigate like the various social exchanges, the engagements um, we have through everyday life, like we kind of get caught in an exchange, which is which is like a reflexive, a reflexive process in itself, kind of working through like what to share yourself and what not. You could kind of call this like creation of social ties and varying strengths. I think the resultant that uh, like comes from from that social tie creation is like a feedback loop, influencing like how one goes about expressing themselves. I mean, like, you know, there's, there's new distinctions, like line sticks to whether this is a result of like growing multiculturalism or the hyper presence of um, liminality. It's hard to firmly say, but I lean into more and more new distinctions growing. It, like, this is kind of evident um, in a trend that happened within Pacifica churches, like around the, the um, 90s, 2000s, across like a few Polynesian, Polynesian ethnicity, uh, there's like all these youth moving on from the church of their parents to the church where they feel they can be more themselves. The anthropologist Eliane Gershon, Gershon, she kind of refers to the shift as like changing moral economies. And what she means here is rather than like trimethyl culture, who's the thing like a, um, say like a good example in Christian, for example, 
they opted for trying to be like just a good Christian in general. And I feel this could be made a point of what I like that line means. And like I mentioned earlier with witnessing cousins at that church, their parents, they went on and grew up to express who they are as Christian Islanders, like in their own way. So I guess, you know, I feel like there's valid evidence there for one's presumptions. But I also think what, like, we have to acknowledge more widely, too, is the strong influence in um, social force that kind of maybe encourages one's um, thoughts is uh, how subconsciously entrenched neoliberalism has become and how men manifest themselves socially. It, kind of, you know, it really picks up around the 80s, obviously, with the first effects being felt in the 90s. So, you know, we've been exposed and absorbed and absorbing it for like 40 years now. Uh, there's not many an argument that capitalism and neoliberalism tends us towards like, more individualistic type attitudes. Um, I wouldn't call uh, more new distinctions as uh, an eventuality of these economic forces, um, but I would argue they go some way into help shaping identity and the like, new forms that come to be expressed. It's fascinating. And the final big question I'm going to put to you, which has been somewhat shadowed um, throughout our conversation, both of you are well-placed to give some insight into the links between religious belief and wider culture. And I've pitched my third big question towards this. The sociologist Max Weber once observed the ghosts of dead religious beliefs that linger and continue to influence culture. In his case, he was arguing that attitudes towards work and savings had been influenced by a worldly asceticism within Protestantism, and that these had endured even as religiosity had declined. I'm interested in your thoughts on how much, or how little, you think that changing patterns in religious belief will or might affect a wider culture. Henry. I think if we, accept, if we accept that New Zealand is becoming more secular, which I think it is, mm-hmm. I think that will affect um, the wider culture. Um, now, if we look at the changes in Māori culture since adopting uh, Christianity, so it kind of happened like this uh, historically. Uh, there was contact with Māori, and then I think around, if we look at 1940 as a, sorry, 1840 as a snapshot, I think I've seen stats where... At that time, uh, there were smatterings of, of uh, religious community, Māori community, religious Māori communities throughout the country. But only five years later, Māori Christians numbered, I think, 80%, 80% of Māori had converted to some form of Christianity. So it, it happened pretty quickly. And if you look at some of those reasons, uh, they were really quite um, practical, pragmatic reasons. To have a Pākehā in your community in those days meant access to trade, so Māori wanted Pākehā in the communities, and so they welcomed missionaries. Um, so there was that aspect of it. But also, Māori wanted this new way of, of this new religion. Um, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's pretty clear. I think Māori actually wanted the new religion. And again, I've thought about this for a while, and it's not something that I necessarily wanted to accept, but I think the evidence is pretty strong that Māori saw Christianity as a nicer way of life, as a nicer religion. So pre-colonial Māori religion, well, there was a lot of paranoia, there was a lot of fear. Even the way you communicated to your gods was was about placating and appeasing the gods and trying not to offend them. And everyday life was was a constant... Was There was a prevalent fear of offending the gods and doing something wrong and then suffering the consequences of that, whether that be a failed crop or a failed harvest or you know a bad fishing expedition, whatever that might be. And the Christian god was more forgiving, I think. So Māori liked that. Also, things like... Um, Tikanga, like kaitangata and, and cannibalism and things were quite uh, prevalent 
and there's a lot of war. And, we, and again, when I say there was a lot of war, it's hard to kind of um, gauge it. What does a lot mean? Well, there were wars. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, I don't think Māori sat around every day uh, fighting and eating people, but it was a lot more prevalent than, than it is today. And so this new religion was nicer. It was less threatening. It was more forgiving. So I think Māori... Um, embraced it pretty quickly and um, that had a, had a huge impact on the wider culture I think a lot of it died out so cannibalism went by the wayside pretty quickly uh, human sacrifice was gone but even there's more subtle um, cultural um, changes uh, attitudes towards for example daughters were sometimes given to chiefs as a gift um, most people would find it pretty abhorrent these days. Um, so attitudes to our children, particularly our daughters, have changed significantly. Some more recent examples, I think there's a quite an interesting one where <clears throat> uh, people who have been members of a marae committee for the past 50 years will notice that personal space has increased. Um, so for example, if I take my marae for, as an example, it can, well it could, 30, 40 years ago, it could sleep 300 people. And these days it's, a, it's about 150. So that's half. Now the the whare hasn't got any smaller, and people haven't really doubled in size. Well, perhaps some have. But what, what has changed has really been people's idea and attitude to, about personal space. Mm. We don't yeah. like to be yeah. that close anymore. So there's these more subtle differences yeah. Yeah. Uh, in culture that that show actually there's been a drastic change in culture. Um, another example is in pre-colonial times there was a social convention called muru. Probably the closest um, translation in English would be uh, compensation. Now, what would happen is if you committed, uh, let's say, committed a hara or a sin, I guess, and you did a wrong, uh, you would be punished for that, depending on what it was, but you'd be punished for that by having all your possessions taken off you. Now, this happened in our iwi in the year 1900, around the year 1900. There was a boatload of uh, school children crossing the Mortu River to go to school. Whatever happened, the boat capsized and six, I think 16 children were killed, were drowned, and two adults. Now, part of that, part of what my tribe, Tefano Albany, had to do was other tribes came to punish us for that. And they punished us by relieving us of all our possessions. There's a lot of stories about that. The, the other tribes would go from, from, from home to home, and well, I mean, you could say village to village, and take all the possessions off the local people. Now, here's the peculiar part. If the other tribes didn't come and muru us and take our possessions, that would be an insult. So it was actually seen as a, a natural part of the process. Now, that's an example where the whole thought, the whole whakaaro has completely changed. I don't think people would even be able to get their head around that kind of idea, that it was it was something you actually looked forward to, to have all your possessions taken off you and to be punished. So I think that's another example where, yeah, culture has changed drastically. Can I bring that more towards our own time? As I hear your story, I, I hear someone who has walked half into a more secular way of being, has that changed your relationship with Māori Dim or Māori Tonga? Yeah, but I've had to adjust a few things. So, of course, I don't participate in prayers, whether those be Christian prayers, 
translated into Te Reo Māori, or um, Māori karakia I see as um, invoking the supernatural. I might say those things to be polite, or because I'm actually because it's quite interesting and it's and it's um, some really rich language in some of those karakia. So I've had to make some adjustments, but but overall, I'm I feel like I'm still as Māori as I've ever been. Right. Um, I participate in so many different aspects of my culture, and so overall, I don't think that's changed at all. The atheist Sam Harris uh, had a point that I hope I can summarise fairly. He's an atheist, but he admires so much about religion. He loves the songs, he loves the buildings, he loves the community. And his point was, I want to keep all of that. I just want to take the supernatural element away. That sounds a little similar to what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's pretty much where I'm at too. I, I just wanted to ask, I hope this isn't a controversial question, but um, with adoption of Christianity by Māori and especially during that time, do you think there's maybe a bit of a resistance to the, the, the broader colonisation process. Mm. I mean, because I know that within Cook Island culture, we, um, yeah, back by Stereo Wars, I, my understanding is uh, so about four different islands I'm from, Archie, Otatake, Rarotonga, Mokin, quite entrenched in the Mokin side, and then the Mokin side, my uncle's family were the last last people to stop eating others. Yeah, and so I get the whole, yeah, there's these kind of wars going on. I, you know, our, um, our adoption of Christianity, kind of, how would I put it? There's a, there's a materialism going on there, but there was also, yeah, and again, I guess on the, the, the part of peace, you know, kind of trying to stop all the, yeah, all the, the warring, all the, that was going on. But then, you know, on the other side of that, there's commentators that say it was, it was tactical. They, so in Kukaman culture, you've got, a, uh, well, traditional Kukaman culture, I don't know how strong it is. Well, this to some extent strong now, but I mean, it cooks, but it's a, it's a three... It's a stratification process. So there's like three levels to it: Ariki, Mataipo, uh, and then uh, Rangatira. And you know the the, the common thesis is that missionaries went straight for the Ariki because they were kind of like you know, supposed supposedly have the most power, and that's how it's spread there. And I guess the particular context is of, of that absorption of Christianity is maybe you know actually arguably so much more different for the Cook Island Maori than it was for New Zealand Maori. But yeah, I just wanted to get your uh, general thoughts there. And, yeah, yeah. I, it's, a, it's a tricky question, and because I think the reasons Māori adopted Christianity are actually multi-layered. I think that's actually quite complex. There are mm-hmm. there are a number of different reasons. Um, I mentioned a few earlier, like um, having a Pākehā in your community by way of a missionary meant you you've got now access to trade. You can get all you know. You can get some uh, guns. It's a really important thing to get a hold of early. But but also um, another reason that that springs to mind is for Maori who were born in the lower classes as Taurekareka or um, if war, warring tribes took over another tribe and you took some people from that tribe they would have a place in your tribe as the servants as the slaves now these slaves from these lower classes worked out that they can climb the social hierarchy if they became uh, knowledgeable of the Bible. They became priests and missionaries themselves. And so a lot of them did. And the example I can think of from the East Coast is a man named Piripi Taumatakura. He was he was taken as a slave as Ngāpuhi came down. Ngāpuhi got hold of muskets pretty early, and I don't want to tread on any toes here, uh, but Ngāpuhi came down, and we call them the Ngāpuhi Raids, where they came down the East Coast, took... Uh, things like carbines, took goods, took women, took slaves. 
and Piripitau Matakura was one of these who ended up up in the Bay of Islands. And I think he befriended um, either Henry Williams or William Williams um, and learned the gospel. Well, when he returned back to the East Coast, he was now revered and he was, you know, he went up a few classes. Um, so there are examples where, where adopting Christianity gave you status. Mm-hmm. And so that's another reason. And there, are, and there are other reasons. Part of it could have been tactical as well, definitely. Mm. It's a fascinating history, yeah. Arama, turning to yourself and your research <laughs> yeah. today, to what extent do you think changing religious patterns will impact the wider culture? To answer the question, yes, but it's complex. It's quite complex. And um, what I mean here is like, you know, what is cultural, what is religion? Is that going to be like a bureaucratic process? And my meaning here is that uh, this is like, there's it's a constant ongoing dialogue between the state and groups, cultural and religious, over what constitutes cultural religion. Um, a good example of this is uh, minority groups uh, came to be supported after the national government came to power um, in the early 1990s. Uh, the shifts they implemented belonged to a policy agenda called um, Skills New Zealand, which was basically a drive to upskill our um, many unskilled workers. Uh, what happened in the crevices of this change is basically the government saying, uh, we'll give you state support only if you can demonstrate to us uh, how what you're teaching at your cultural organisation uh, conforms to being uh, transferable into the job market. So I guess uh, what I'm saying here is that the dualistic exchange we perceive are happening uh, between cult- uh, religion and culture is also influenced by a third actor, the state. Uh, I call it like a tradical exchange. The state isn't an absent party to uh, the respective change that might be occurring in these two domains, but it's uh, very much involved um, in this process of change. And I guess the follow-up question to ask here is, what then drives this change? Is it economical in its cause? Is it emotional in its cause? Is it political in its cause? Um, It's hard to tell, but I believe to be many things that drive change and the residual effects it has on the respective domains of life. Coming back to Garen, and what he saw, he's right to insinuate aspects of traditions associated with these particular ways or cultures are losing their relevance. Uh, maybe it's a sort of spring cleaning, uh, but as I spoke to earlier on the various distinct ways of my participants um, expressing their kindness, people also appear to want to ensure that they hold into what makes them distinct, uh, be that informed culturally or religious. Um, so maybe it's just a broader shift away, possibly completely from the elder organisational and institutional aspects of religion. And consequently, what we see now as part of the big shift uh, vis-a-vis this notion we call secularism. Um, it's the manifestation of many different distinct forms of expressing, expressing one's culture or more generally themselves. This is it's, uh, what uh, so the philosopher Charles Taylor, he kind of speaks to this, about how the authority has shifted from external to personal. In the personal space, I don't think things are lost, but when it's given the capacity to express uh, who they are in their own distinct way. So maybe that's happening via the changing patterns in religious belief, affecting wider culture. It's all rather complex, and we can't forget that uh, all this is occurring as part of a trilateral exchange between religion, culture, and the state. I guess like what the future might look like is anyone's guess, um, and I don't think like I'm sufficiently far along in my academic career to uh, make a solid comment on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but if I was to guess the trilateral exchange between the three will continue and have 
influence on many aspects of social life. What these may be, I don't know, but uh, apart from positive towards it, tending towards the idea of uh, inclusivity across students and so. Well, you've certainly put your academic stakes down in a fascinating and complex terrain, and I wish you the best of your studies. Uh, to both of you, I suspect this isn't going to be the last word on the subjects we've broached today, but it's been a fascinating conversation nonetheless. Uh, to Henry, Rama, thank you for your time and insight today and best with your endeavours. This podcast was produced as part of the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies Rebellious Minds Seminar Series.